Welcome to the MCG Pediatric Podcast. This is Rebecca Yang, and I am a pediatrician here at the Medical College of Georgia. I'm joined by James Davis, who is a pediatric resident here. Good to be here. Today we'll be talking with Dr. Jennifer Tucker, who is one of our pediatric emergency physicians here at the Children's Hospital of Georgia. Welcome, Dr. Tucker. Thanks. It's great to be here today. So most people will think that an ingestion of one or two tablets of a medication is harmless. However, there is a well-known concept in emergency medicine referred to as one pill or sip can kill. Today, we will be discussing how a single adult therapeutic dose of a medication and other common household products can cause significant toxicity in a child. We should remind our listeners that many of the cases of accidental or intentional ingestions are managed and treated at a non-health facility, often with the help of poison control. That's correct. Where a child is treated for ingestions is often associated with their age. Older children and adults are more likely to be treated in a healthcare facility after bigger and likely intentional ingestions. This population of patients tends to exhibit more risk-taking behaviors for recreational use, suicidal gestures, and adult mimicking behaviors. Most often, they overdose on prescription medications, alcohol, pesticides, and cleaning substances. On the other hand, while for younger children, the majority is due to accidental ingestion. So for kids less than six years old, you should think of everyday household products and over-the-counter medications. So that's your cosmetics, your personal care products, foreign bodies and toys, cleaning supplies, topicals, vitamins, antihistamines, cough and cold preparations, and pesticides. And young children especially are at risk of eating or drinking potentially toxic substances based on the color of the substance or even the container it's in. After all, any parent knows that kids love to put things in their mouth. So it's a good time to also remind the listeners that the average toddler weighs 10 to 15 kilograms versus the average 70 kilogram for an adult. In other words, It takes much less to reach a toxic dose for a child than an adult. Okay, so before we get started, let's review the basic assessment skills a provider should always do for a kid who comes in suspicious of a toxic ingestion. So remember your ABCs, airway, breathing, and circulation, followed by a thorough physical exam and diagnostic studies. You should already be developing a differential diagnosis as soon as you lay eyes on the child. Does the child appear sleepy? Um, have red, watery eyes? Is the child actively vomiting or drooling? James, what else should you look for? So kind of going through the ABC mnemonic, we're looking for signs of airway obstruction. So is there vomit or blood in the mouth or nose or on the clothing? Is the child gurgling, coughing, drilling, or gagging? Then looking at breathing, is there audible wheezing or signs of gasping or just increased work of breathing? And then looking at circulation. So um, what's their skin perfusion? Are they flushed? Are they pale? Are they cyanotic? Um, and in general, signs of serious ingestion uh, often include like difficult or labored breathing, difficulty or discomfort with swallowing, oral pain, chest pain, abdominal pain, nausea, and vomiting. Great job. Progression to more significant injury from an ingestion would include tachycardia, hematemesis, hypotension, and shock. An abdominal exam that is positive for guarding, rebound, tenderness, or diminished bowel sounds would indicate acute peritonitis. Because the patient's status can change very rapidly, it is essential to reassess often and monitor the need for ventilatory support. In the meantime, you can utilize diagnostic tools to help you narrow down your differential. An EKG is helpful for showing a dysrhythmia or a conduction delay, which can indicate more serious toxicity. And what about labs? So labs can provide vital information to guide monitoring and treatment. However, it's important that you order tests that focus on specific findings according to your clinical suspicions. This is especially true when considering toxicology screens, since these tests are usually useful in guiding treatment. 
And then I've also heard some debate as far as which patients are likely to benefit from decontamination versus others. So you bring up a good point. For many years, poisonings were treated with the same protocol of aggressive decontamination and standard antidote regimens. Gastric decontamination, such as activated charcoal and gastric lavage, are no longer routinely recommended and should be reserved for the most severe cases or if indicated. It's important to consider the type and amount of substance ingested, the potential toxicity, the time that's elapsed since the ingestion, and the symptoms exhibited. Okay, let's dive into some specific toxic ingestions. James, can you start us out with a clinical case? All right, so we have our first patient, a three-year-old boy brought into the ED by his parents. Mom reports that he went to bed for a nap after returning home from his grandparents earlier that day. Mom went to wake him up after an hour, but he has stayed unusually sleepy. Uh, Mom was concerned because she got a call from his grandmother saying she found several of his grandfather's daily medications scattered on the floor in their bedroom, and she's unsure of how many pills are missing. So this is a pretty typical case we get in the pediatric ER. Sometimes a family can tell you what medications they suspect have been ingested by the child. Uh, Sometimes they have no idea. Um, So let's discuss some potential medications that are commonly found in the home. Let's start with calcium channel blockers. So remember, calcium channel blockers slow the influx of calcium through voltage-sensitive channels in the cardiac myocytes, vascular smooth muscle, and SA and AV nodes. These medications can be commonly found in the household prescribed for high blood pressure and migraine headache prevention. So that's right. Uh, Improper use and accidental ingestion can lead to bradycardia, hypotension, second and third degree heart block, and eventually cardiogenic shock or cardiac arrest. Nifedipine is an example of a calcium channel blocker. It's available in immediate and extended release formulations. The clinical effects generally appear within one to five hours after ingestion for an immediate release preparation, but may be delayed with sustained release up to 14 hours. Hypotension may last more than 24 hours, and cardiac conduction disturbances may last up to seven days. Death has occurred secondary to refractory hypotension and bradycardia in children in doses as low as 10 milligrams of nifedipine in a 10-kilogram child. So then if a parent suspects ingestion of a calcium channel blocker, what should they do? So parents should always call poison control for any ingestion, but should also go ahead and bring their child to the emergency department. If the ingestion has been in less than an hour, activated charcoal is an option. Um, But as we mentioned earlier, its use has been decreasing since there are now other um, options and antidotes. Uh, Activated charcoal is a tarry and thick substance taken by mouth that traps the toxins to prevent absorption. So you can imagine that it should never be used if you're concerned that a child is unable to protect his airway. Activated charcoal should not be used for treatment of ingestions of a corrosive substance like acids and alkaline substances, hydrocarbons, ethanol, methanol, or heavy metals like lithium, iron, or lead. Gotcha. So in this case, for an ingestion of calcium channel blockers, uh, this is more a case of watch and wait. So patients should be monitored for at least six to eight hours for a short-acting agent and 24 hours for a sustained release preparation. These children do have the potential to decompensate quickly during these critical periods of time. You should treat the symptoms, for example, atropine for bradycardia, fluid resuscitation, and inotropes for hypotension. Consider calcium chloride, glucagon, and even insulin and glucose. Sometimes ECMO um, may be indicated if symptoms are refractory. All right. So then in summary, calcium channel blockers are a commonly prescribed medication in homes, and the presentation of ingestion includes bradycardia, hypotension, and drowsiness. Always ensure the airway is protected, and medications are available to reverse the hypotension and prevent the patient from going into shock. Let's move on to clonidine, which is another medication used to treat high blood pressure. But remember that in pediatrics, clonidine is also used to treat ADHD, 
Tourette syndrome, and even sleep disorders. Clonidine is an alpha agonist that is rapidly absorbed in the body with an onset of around 30 minutes. It is available in tablet form in several doses, as well as being offered as a skin patch. The therapeutic index of clonidine is very narrow. Overdose can occur with just one or two tablets. Children may develop significant toxicity from sucking on a clonidine patch. So then, what types of symptoms should we worry about with accidental ingestion or overdose of clonidine? So when children present with an overdose of clonidine, it may look like an opioid overdose. These kids will be drowsy, have small pupils, be bradycardic and hypotensive, have respiratory depression, and may even have hypotonia. The CNS depression can go from just being sleepy to progression uh, into full-on comatose state. Managing these kids includes supportive care with monitoring and continuous assessment of the airway. While activated charcoal is an option, if the ingestion has been less than an hour, it would not be ideal if the child is overly sedated and unable to protect the airway. An EKG should be obtained to evaluate for arrhythmia. A small percentage of kids, probably less than 30%, may respond to naloxone or Narcan if they're having severe respiratory depression and are altered. You need to consider intubation to protect the airway uh, to keep them sedated long enough to get the medication out of their system. Otherwise, symptom control with IV fluids for hypotension and atropine for bradycardia, and some patients may require pressors. Asymptomatic patients should be observed for four to six hours, uh, and for 24 hours if a patch or sustained release preparation is involved. So then, in summary, accidental ingestion or overdose of clonidine can include drowsiness, uh, small pupils, bradycardia, hypotension, and respiratory depression. And uh, what's important is we need to remember that protection of the airway is key and that we should be getting an EKG to evaluate for arrhythmia. Beyond that, symptomatic treatment and observation is going to be your mainstay. Let's move on to another class of common medications found in the household, oral hypoglycemics, specifically sulfonylureas. Remember, these medications stimulate beta cells in the pancreas to secrete insulin independent of blood glucose levels. This could be very dangerous for small children who are very insulin sensitive and have limited glycogen stores. So that's right. Medications such as glipizide and gliburide are easily accessible to children simply because they're prescribed frequently among family and household members. These medications are also rapidly absorbed from the GI tract. A child who accidentally ingests sulfonylurea will present with a wide range of symptoms secondary to hypoglycemia including fussiness, irritability, lethargy, confusion, headache, and seizures. Typically, the symptoms occur within eight hours, but may persist for 24 hours for an extended release formulation. So is this one, again, another watch and wait? Um, Yeah, especially if the child is not symptomatic. You can monitor for eight to 12 hours for immediate release and 20 to 24 hours for extended release. These patients may be allowed to eat with frequent glucose check. So for these patients, is administering glucose an option for them? So that's a very good question. Uh, Glucose should not be administered automatically because if you supplement with glucose and the patient is not hypoglycemic, it may mask the development of hypoglycemia. Therefore, you run the risk of discharging them home sooner than you should. If the patient has confirmed hypoglycemia, IV dextrose should be administered to maintain a sugar above 60 milligrams per deciliter. Patients should be monitored for at least six to eight hours after the last IV glucose administration due to the risk of developing hyperinsulinemia from the extra sugar load. You just need to ensure that they can maintain an appropriate blood glucose level on their own. Gotcha. So then in summary, kids may come in with symptoms up to 24 hours after ingestion with irritability, altered mental status, and seizures. And IV glucose should be administered only with confirmed hypoglycemia. Observation and frequent monitoring of glucose levels, therefore, is extremely important. 
Great. Let's move on to another clinical case, this one regarding a common household product. So our second case, we have a father bringing in his four-year-old daughter uh, with concerns that she has started breathing more heavily in the last hour and seems to be sleepier than usual. She had a low-grade fever at home, but no congestion and no rhinorrhea. She's also complaining of a sore throat and vomited in the car on the way to the ER. Earlier that day, both she and her father were cleaning out the garage. Um, So this is a great opportunity to discuss toxic alcohols, which include methanol, ethylene glycol, ethanol, and isopropyl alcohol. All of these can cause an anion gap metabolic acidosis, but methanol and ethylene glycol are especially concerning simply due to how easily they can be mistaken for something else that is harmless and then cause significant morbidity. That's right. Often substances with methanol and ethylene glycol are brightly colored liquids that may be mistaken for sweetened drinks. This is an example of why you should never store things in bottles that would normally contain something else. Methanol may also be intentionally ingested to get intoxicated if there is no access to alcoholic beverages. Toxic forms of alcohols produce CNS depression as the first sign of toxicity. So methanol is available as windshield wiper fluid or de-icer. It often is a bright, pretty blue, the same color as many sports drinks and juices. Ethylene glycol, better known as antifreeze, is an enticing, bright, neon green color that looks suspiciously like Gatorade. Clinical manifestations of toxic alcohols may be delayed up to 8 to 24 hours. A person who has ingested these substances may have CNS depression, ranging from mild inebriation to coma. Clinical signs on exam of toxic alcohol poisoning include tachypnea when there are no signs of a respiratory illness. Essentially, the body is trying to blow off CO2 to compensate for the significant metabolic acidosis. James, what are some other symptoms that are associated with toxic alcohol ingestions? So additionally, patients may also complain of vision disturbances, including blurry, double, or hazy vision after methanol ingestion, and that's due to the buildup of formic acid. Uh, And ultimately, they may even have blindness with fixed dilated pupils. Um, A late presentation of that is also seizure. Good job, James. Ingestion of ethylene glycol causes calcium to bind to oxalate crystals, which can lead to renal toxicity. Acute tubular necrosis can occur about 12 to 48 hours after ingestion. Lab results will often show an anion gap, metabolic acidosis, and hypocalcemia. And EKG may show a prolonged QT interval. So then what are the goals of management of a toxic alcohol poisoning? So the root of toxicity is the metabolite formation from the activation of alcohol dehydrogenase. Treatment should never be delayed. Uh, First thing you need to do is block the toxic metabolite. Back in the olden days, um, ethanol would be administered to act as a competitive inhibitor, but obviously um, this treatment is not ideal for children. And now we have femepazole. You should correct the pH to around 7.2 with sodium bicarbonate, and hemodialysis can eliminate toxic metabolites, especially when metabolic acidosis is present with evidence of end organ damage. If we put some more context to the minimum fatal dose of these substances, it would be as small as one teaspoon in a 10-kilo child for 100% methanol and a little over two teaspoons in a 10-kilo child of 95% ethylene glycol. Okay. So then in summary, clinical clues of toxic alcohol poisoning include tachypnea without history of respiratory illness, visual changes, altered mental status, and drowsiness. And labs will reveal an anion gap metabolic acidosis and hypocalcemia. The goals of management include blocking the toxic metabolites, correcting the pH with bicarb, and eliminating toxic metabolites. Good job, James. Let's talk about benzocaine, which is a local anesthetic found in teething gels, hemorrhoid creams, and vaginal creams. The Food and Drug Administration has issued warnings about teething products containing benzocaine. However, these products are still out there and easily accessible. 
That's correct. Uh, Well-meaning parents may buy teething gels thinking that it will help their fussy infant. The toxicity in benzocaine is believed to be due to its metabolism into aniline, which is a precursor for methemoglobin-forming compounds. Clinical onset of symptoms can occur within 30 to 60 minutes, but as late as six hours after ingestion. GI irritation is common, and there is significant risk of progression to tachycardia, marked cyanosis, and hypoxia secondary to methemoglobinemia. Kids exposed to higher doses may present with agitation, severe hypoxia, metabolic acidosis, lethargy, and stupor. Dang, I didn't realize how dangerous these could be. So yes, let's get into some more details about the toxicity associated with benzocaine. Infants under four months are more susceptible due to the relative deficiency of methemoglobin reductase. So for infants under six months, just 100 milligrams of benzocaine can result in methemoglobinemia. And that's equivalent to a quarter teaspoon of a common topical on the market with 7.5% benzocaine. And for children 14 to 60 months, one half to one teaspoon can lead to methemoglobinemia. And this amount of exposure can result in levels of 33 to 59%. So if you have a 20% formulation of these medications, it really doesn't take much for children to be affected. Absolutely. Um, So treatment for ingestion is methylene blue if the met hemoglobin level is greater than 30% or if the patient is having respiratory distress or cardiac dysrhythmia. It works very well and very quickly. Gastric lavage is recommended for comatose patients or patients at risk of seizures based on the level. But for those that are asymptomatic, you should observe for at least one to two hours. All right. So bottom line then, uh, we want to counsel our patient families on the dangers of teething gels and to put away the hemorrhoid creams. That's right. Okay. So one household item that I was actually surprised to learn about was imidazolines, which are basically eye drops like Visine and nasal decongestants like Afrin. These products can cause quite a bit of harm. Um, That's absolutely right. Uh, Infants and children are most sensitive to the hemodynamic effects of imidazolines. Clinical symptoms include lethargy, somnolence, pallor, cool extremities, meiosis, bradycardia, hypotension, loss of consciousness, and even respiratory depression. Wow. Um, So I guess important question is how quickly after ingestion do these symptoms start? Onset can be within 30 to 60 minutes after ingestion with a peak effect in two to four hours, and the effects can last up to 24 hours. The good thing is that there are no reports of fatalities after ingestion of eye drops or nose drops, but remember, as little as half a teaspoon or two and a half milliliters may result in significant symptoms in children. So then what's the treatment? So it's primarily supportive care. Uh, You could consider activated charcoal if the ingestion was within an hour, Um, But again, if the patient is um, sleepy or is at risk of not being able to protect the airway, that would not be a good idea. But uh, primarily, you should treat the symptoms. For example, IV fluids and atropine for hypotension and bradycardia and pull out the Narcan to treat severe symptoms. And how long should these patients be observed? Uh, So asymptomatic patients can be observed for two to four hours and then discharged. Symptomatic patients should be observed at least 24 hours or longer if there's evidence of severe toxicity. Good to know. Okay, let's talk about camphor, which is an ingredient in antipyritic, rubefacient, aphrodisiacs, contraceptives, and cold remedies. It's been used for centuries. So uh, camphor acts locally on skin and mucous membranes to induce hyperemia and a sensation of warmth. When ingested, it also rapidly absorbs in the GI tract. Uh, So the FDA in the 80s um, limited the concentration of camphor to 11% in over-the-counter products, Um, But higher concentrations, up to 20%, can still be found and ordered from other parts of the world. So just a few examples of products with camphor include Tiger Balm, which has the maximum allowed 11% of camphor, Camphophonique, which has 10.8% camphor, uh, Bengay, which has 5% of camphor and uh, also has salicylates, which we'll talk about in a little bit, 
and then Vicks Vapor Rub, everyone's favorite, with 4.81%. So then what should we expect to see with an accidental ingestion? So the penetrating odor and pungent aromatic taste can help with identification. Clinical symptoms can occur within 5 to 90 minutes of ingestion, and there'll be a generalized sensation of warmth, followed by oral and epigastric burning with nausea and vomiting. Toxic levels can lead to progression of confusion, vertigo, delirium, hallucinations, muscle fasciculation, seizures, and coma, and death results from respiratory depression that has progressed to failure or status epilepticus. The minimum lethal dose is 50 to 500 milligrams per kilogram of camphor, and one gram has resulted in the death of a child. So to give that some context, one ml of Vicks Vaporub and 10 mls of camphophenic equals one gram, and five mls of the 20% concentration of camphor oil has one gram. So that's one teaspoon of camphor oil has one gram. So there is significant toxicity with just a small amount. Supportive care includes airway management and seizure control, and asymptomatic patients should be observed for six to eight hours. So then the bottom line here is that products with camphor seem harmless, but due to easy access and fast absorption, even very small amounts can cause significant morbidity and even mortality. Uh, This is another substance then to include in anticipatory guidance to parents during well checks. So I also want to mention methyl salicylate, uh, which is probably uh, the grandfather of one pill, one sip can kill. Uh, It's an infrequent cause of salicylate poisoning, but it can result in severe toxicity because of its concentrated forms and rapid absorption in the GI tract. Yeah, methyl salicylates are commonly found in wintergreen, and it's also in Bengay, an icy hot balm. So that's right. Uh, Bengay Extra Strength Arthritis Rub is 30% methyl salicylate in addition to the 4% of camphor. And ICIOT is 30% methyl salicylate. And oil of wintergreen, which is literally the grandfather, is 98% methyl salicylate. These substances smell like candy, uh, so children may be enticed to sneak a little taste. One cc of 98% methyl salicylate is 1,400 milligrams of aspirin. And five cc's of methyl salicylate equals 7,000 milligrams of aspirin. So then uh, what symptoms should we expect with this type of ingestion? So essentially, um, this ingestion is going to be identical to salicylate poisoning. Um, Onset can be within two hours of ingestion. You're going to have a lot of GI symptoms like nausea, vomiting, hematemesis, and even potentially a large GI bleed. Uh, Metabolic acidosis uh, with respiratory alkalosis will be seen on your labs, and they can have hyperthermia, lethargy, tinnitus, tachycardia, seizures, and even coma. The minimum potential toxic dose in a child is 150 milligrams per kilogram, and as little as four cc's of oil of wintergreen has been fatal in a child. Um, So how do we manage these ingestions? You can get a salicylate level, but it may not correlate with the severity of toxicity. Hydration and use of IV sodium bicarbonate for urine alkalinization can help enhance elimination, but hemodialysis may also be necessary. And so um, just so we're covering all the bases, what would be the indications for hemodialysis? So hemodialysis should be considered when the ingestion of concentrations are more than 100 milligrams per deciliter, as well as end organ damage, including development of pulmonary edema, altered mental status, and cerebral edema. Patients will have renal failure and not respond to therapy with refractory acidosis or other electrolyte abnormalities. All treatments may be discontinued when clinical symptoms resolved or when levels are below 40 uh, to 35 milligrams per deciliter. So then to summarize, uh, toxicity from methyl salicylate ingestion is due to the concentrated forms and rapid absorption. A high index of suspicion and prompt recognition of clinical signs and symptoms, including nausea, vomiting, tinnitus, hyperventilation, tachycardia, and metabolic acidosis is important. And treatment includes limiting absorption, enhancing elimination, 
correcting metabolic abnormalities, and providing supportive care. Thanks, James, for summarizing. Wow, it's time to begin wrapping up our episode today. So we've highlighted several medications and substances that can be toxic in small doses, all of which are commonly found in the household. So it's important to remember that most ingestions in children are accidental and likely non-toxic and subsequently will not require intervention. However, there are a few villains out there that can cause serious morbidity and mortality, especially since many of these items are in the household and readily accessible. Please remember to counsel parents regularly during your well check exams regarding these dangers. The risk increases as children grow older due to their increasing ability to move and to reach for objects and their growing curiosity. Yes, and we can't forget to mention poison control. 1-800-222-1222. Poison control will help determine those who need medical management and those who can safely stay at home. So it's it's an important number, not just for providers, but for families as well. Um, They can also aid in the management of toxic ingestions for patients in the ED, and they provide important demographic information to the National Poison Data System for research and education. Thanks, Jennifer and James, for a really great discussion today. An additional thanks to Dr. George Hsu and Dr. Eric Ring, who contributed to today's discussion. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. Remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. Clinical vignette cases presented are based on hypothetical patient scenarios. We look forward to speaking to you at our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast.